0: Greetings, if you're here for the first time. My name's Mark Mullery. I serve as one of the elders here. And it's my privilege to bring the message this morning. Thank you. Uh, as you prayed for um, both Lee Rausch and Vince Hinder's last week, they had successful surgeries. And Vince was under strict orders to stay home, so he's here this morning. <laughs> Boo. We're glad to have you back. and glad you're doing uh, better. Um, as Stephanie was talking about the offering a moment ago, you might wonder, you know, when I give money to the church, like, where does it go? And it goes a thousand different directions. But, but one is, it creates time for a pastor like me to work on a message like this. It provides an opportunity to have a nice library and an office to work in. And this week, I'll tell you, this passage, I have, I have learned so much. I've never understood a lot of what's going on in this passage and I, by God's grace, have really learned a lot this week. And I hope that I can help you if this passage has been confusing for you. If you've read it previously, I hope I can help make it more plain. And I want to say thank you for your faithful giving that makes the uh, the, the, the gift of time available for us to work on messages like this. We're in the Gospel of Mark in a series called Follow Me. And we're in a, a transition point in this gospel uh As we turn to chapter 11, we're looking at the first 25 verses this morning. And Leah James is going to read the scripture for us. So please prepare your hearts and open your Bibles.
1: Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned tables of the money changers and seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you had cursed has withered.
0: Thank you, Leah. Let's pray. O great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as you have provided these living words to us, we see here Jesus coming into Jerusalem to great praise. Would you enable us this morning to see Jesus? Would you open the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus for who he truly is and to respond with joyful praise, with humble obedience, with trust, with heartfelt prayers. We ask for his glory. Amen. So, you've probably seen those man or woman on the street interviews where somebody's out with a microphone and they've got some interesting question and they're interviewing people and asking their responses. I wonder what kind of responses we might get if we went out somewhere in public today and asked people this question. Question, How can we fix what's wrong with the world? How can we fix what's wrong with the world? I wonder if you were to just go out to random people, you know, what kinds of answers might you get? I, I suspect you'd get a whole lot of different answers. Some people would probably talk about climate change and others might talk about the economy. Some people might say we need to return to our Christian roots. We need a revival. Others might say we need to be more secular. I think if you talk to enough people, you might find older people had some thoughts and younger people had others. And people who lived in cities might think one way and people who live in more rural areas might think another. But one answer I'd be very surprised to hear from anyone would be this. How can we fix what's wrong with the world? Messiah. We need a Messiah. But if you went to first century Jerusalem, if you went to Jerusalem in the time of Jesus and you walked around and asked people, how can we fix what's wrong with the world? I am quite confident that you would get a lot of one word answers. And the word would be Mashiach, Messiah. We need Messiah, the son of David, Israel's greatest king. We need Messiah. The one who could usher in a golden era like David's kingdom, bringing prosperity and freedom and stature internationally for the country. We need Messiah who can raise an army and kick out these hated Romans. We need Messiah who can establish the kingdom of God here on the earth. In the Old Testament, this word Messiah literally means anointed one. And it most commonly referred to the king because kings were commonly anointed by, with oil in becoming king. But sometimes prophets were also anointed and priests were anointed for their ministry as well. Now, we don't hear this word Messiah much in our world today, except we do hear the word that the Greeks used for Messiah. You know what that is? It's Christ. Just heard from Christo, from Greek background, that name carrying forward. So when we say the name Jesus Christ, we're not actually saying a first name and a last name, we're saying a first name and a title. Jesus Messiah. This is how Mark, the gospel writer, introduces Jesus to us back in chapter 1 and verse 1. What does he say? He opens this this writing by saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Messiah, the Son of God. This is the epiphany that the Apostle Peter had back in chapter 8 when he says to Jesus, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And yet, if you've read this gospel, if you've been here through this series, You may have noticed that throughout these stories, Jesus has been continually suppressing and silencing people and demons from explaining or exclaiming to others who he really is. Back in chapter one, he wouldn't permit the demons to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. In chapter 5, he raises a little girl from the dead, and then he tells his parents, her parents, not to say anything about who he is and what he's done. But now, as we turn the page from chapter 10 to chapter 11, the silence is ending. This is a turning point for Jesus, and it's a turning point for the world. Jesus begins to clearly and intentionally reveal who he is, that he is Messiah. This passage that we're looking at today covers three days in what's sometimes called the Passion Week, the week starting on Sunday when Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem and ending on Friday when he's crucified, Saturday when he's in the tomb, and then the following Sunday when he's raised from the grave. So we're looking at Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday of that week in this passage, and we're looking at two strange stories. Hard to figure out what's going on here. We get Jesus riding a a colt, a young donkey, into the city, and then we get Jesus cursing a fig tree and disrupting trade in the temple. What is he revealing to us about himself here? He's revealing that he's Messiah, He enters Jerusalem receiving messianic praise and he enters the temple expressing messianic judgment. What relevance could this have for us that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, the gospel of Jesus Messiah is good news for all people since it gets to the heart of our greatest problem. What would it take to set the world right? Our biggest problem is that our sin alienates us from God. And Jesus has come as Messiah to solve that problem. So I want to I come into this passage with a question. Jesus is revealing to us who he is. When Jesus reveals who he really is, how do we respond? When Jesus reveals to you who he really is, how do you respond? How have you responded? How are you responding to him? So we've got two stories here, each with three scenes. Story number one, Jesus enters Jerusalem receiving messianic praise. Scene one, drawing near to Jerusalem. It says in verse one here, now when they drew near to Jerusalem the capital city of Israel, this city set up on a hill, Mount Zion, city of David. When they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. And we'll move on from there. But for a moment, I want you just to consider because Mark's giving us uh, some geographical information that's, that's important. And I've never been to Israel. If you haven't been to Israel, we need to know the geography of, of what this looks like. So here's a map. This is the nation of Israel in the first century, Circled up at the top, that's the the little town of Capernaum in the region of Galilee on the Sea of Galilee. That's where almost all the activity in these first 10 chapters has taken place. Circled down at the bottom, that's Jerusalem. And that distance is about Fairfax to Richmond. That's about the distance between those two. So Jesus has been working and doing his ministry primarily up in Galilee, but now he's made his way down to Jerusalem. This is significant. And as he is, is doing that, he's about ready to come into the city. Now, here's the next map. The city is um, a city set on a hill, From Jericho, 12 miles away to Jerusalem, there's almost a 4,000 foot elevation increase. So it's a steep climb to get up to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem has walls around it. And in those walls are gates. And so you can approach the city from different directions and come in through different gates. So The red circle there over on the right, that's the road coming from Bethany. The green circle just above it, that's where the Mount of Olives is. That's the the area where Jesus is going to spend a lot of time, but it's outside the city. And he's approaching the city through, through that road from Bethany. And that blue circle, that's where this temple is, this, this famous temple. And so when you come in from Bethany, you're actually coming right into the temple area. You can come in and make a hard left and go around the temple and go into the city, or you can come in and climb the steps and go right into the temple area. So that's where Jesus is, 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 is coming in. And I want you to see, too, that it's, there, there's a geographical uh, a shift here, but there's also a time shift. Chapters 1 to 10 took about three years. Chapters 11 to 16 are going to take about a week. That's how significant this week is. Jesus, for the first time in this gospel, begins to really publicly identify himself as Messiah. How does he do that? How is he signaling and identifying that he's Messiah? Well, here's how. It's scene two. It's all about the cult. And so Jesus, in scene two, he says to these two disciples, go into this village, and there's going to be a colt there tied up, and I want you to get it and bring it back here. And if anybody says, what are you doing with this colt?' Because it isn't your colt, Then just say, the Lord has need of it, and do that and bring it here. Why? What's the significance of this? We don't know if this was a prearranged uh, uh, situation to get this colt or if Jesus somehow knew that it was going to be available. But whatever the case, these disciples go and they're going to bring this colt, this, this, this young donkey, to Jesus for him to ride. Now, We don't understand the background to this, but they would have because they knew their Bibles and they knew the expectations for a coming king and a coming Messiah. And this comes right out of the prophet Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Here's what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Messianic expectation. Your king is coming to you. What kind of a king is he? He's righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus, by getting this donkey and coming into Jerusalem this way, is announcing that he is this king. Don't miss this. He is announcing his messianic rule by coming in it couldn't have been more clear to these people if he spray-painted Zechariah 99 on the side of the donkey. Everybody knows what this means. And this king is righteous and humble, and he has salvation. This is important. He's not riding in like a conquering general would ride into Rome on a war horse with an army. Think about this. Have you ever been to a parade, watched a parade on TV? You know how parades work. There's all these floats and if there's cool cars. There's old classic cars and, and, and fancy new ones. And there's usually a grand marshal. There's, there's one kind of VIP main person for the parade. And that person is always riding. Well, that, that person doesn't ride a beat up, rusted out old minivan. They get some really cool car or float to ride on. They save something special for that VIP. Here's Jesus the king, and he's riding in the equivalent of an old minivan into Jerusalem. It's not a war horse. There's no army. And he's coming to save his people. I wonder what he's coming to save them from. Hold that question. And now we turn to scene three, verse seven. It says, they brought the coal to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on it. They're sort of, it's, it's, it's never been ridden before. So they're sort of making a saddle for him to sit on. And then it says, many spread their cloaks on the road. Picture this dusty road coming into, into Jerusalem. And, and the others were, were cutting, uh, spreading leafy branches that they would cut from the fields. And they went before him and, and after him shouting. This is not quiet. This is public and loud. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So Jesus is coming in, riding this colt. You know who else? rode a colt at the time of his anointing to be king? Solomon. And everybody in Jerusalem knew that. He rode his father David's mule, and then he was anointed king. And here Jesus is getting this royal reception, this red carpet treatment, people laying down their coats on this dusty road for Jesus to ride over on this donkey and this tra- crowd to, to, to trample on. And he's coming into this praise, Hosanna. What does that mean? Well, it's right out of Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verse 25 says, save us, we pray, O Lord. And that got converted into this Hosanna, this exclamation of praise, save now, Hosanna. And then verse 26 of Psalm 118 says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And every person in Jerusalem knew that by heart. Because this is the Passover week, and when they came into the temple, they sang Psalm 118. They sang these words coming in together Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You need to see, we need to understand when Jesus comes in, riding this colt, getting this praise, this is the return of Messiah. This is the return of the king. And the crowd is rejoicing and singing, and shouting, and Jesus isn't shushing them up and telling them to be quiet. He's welcoming this praise as he rides into the city. And as he arrives in the city, he gets off, goes up, looks around a little bit. It's the end of the day, and he leaves and returns back to Bethany for the night. What is Jesus showing us about himself? He's showing us Like he's showing the people there that he is Messiah. Messiah has come. He's the son of David and he's bringing the kingdom with him. Now, if Jesus is king, how should we respond to King Jesus? Behold your king. He's come to you. Are you responding with childlike trust? in his words, obedience to his word in scripture like those two disciples who just went and got the donkey? Are you responding with spontaneous praise as we gather together on Sundays, other times? Or with sacrifice as people laid down their clothing for it to get trampled on? Have you bowed your knee to King Jesus? Have you humbled yourself and come under his rule. Behold your king. How are we responding to him? Story number two. Story number two. Jesus enters the temple expressing messianic judgment. Here Jesus curses a fig tree and he enters the temple and kicks out the sellers and the buyers and then they find the fig tree withered and Jesus explains all this with a lesson about faith and prayer, and forgiveness. That's crystal clear, right? Like so many questions. Why is he cursing this innocent tree? It seems petty and vindictive and mean. It seems so out of character for who Jesus is. And why is he driving out these sellers and the buyers out of the the temple? Is this a lesson on, on not commercializing religion? That's often the message that comes from this passage. Well, the first lesson here is this is a lesson in how to read your Bible well, because if you don't keep these three sections together, you can't understand what the author intends and what Jesus is doing. These three sections, like other sections in the Gospel of Mark, they fit together like a sandwich. You get the fig tree, you get the temple, and then you get the fig tree. It's a fig tree sandwich with a temple in between. So that's how we're going to look at this, and we have to do it that way because each section explains and interprets the other. So scene one, Jesus curses the fig tree. It's the next day, so it's, it's day two in what Mark is giving us. It's probably Monday of that Passion Week. It says, they came from Bethany in verse 12, and he was hungry. We see his humanity again. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, It was covered in leaves. He went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So here's the weird part. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. What is going on here? He goes to this fig tree looking for figs, knowing it's not the season for figs. and He doesn't find any figs on it. And he curses the tree. So think about what's happening here. Jesus goes to a tree that looks good. It's got leaves on it. It's healthy, but it has no fruit. And he pronounces judgment on it. Okay, just remember that. That's the setup for what's going to happen next. Verse 15, scene two, Jesus clears the temple. It says they came into Jerusalem. He goes into the temple and he begins to drive out those who were buying and selling. And he overturns the table of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling pigeons. I'll explain in a minute what this is all about. And he's teaching them and saying, is it not written, this is vital to get this, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. What's going on here? Drives out these buyers and sellers, And then he quotes from two prophets. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, and you've made a den of robbers. He's quoting the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 56, God announces through the prophet Isaiah that he will bring foreigners to Jerusalem and to the temple. Why? For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples for all ethne for all ethnic groups for all the nations that's his intention that they have a place to come then jesus quotes jeremiah the prophet chapter 7 and verse 11 when god announces through jeremiah that his house this temple has become a den of robbers and will therefore be destroyed and that temple built by Solomon was destroyed. Because of its corruptness, the corruptness of its leaders and people had become a den of robbers, it would be destroyed. Now when Jesus announces this to the group there in the temple, he gets two reactions. This is so typical of what goes on in the Gospel of Mark. The religious leaders are incensed and want to kill Jesus, but they know they can't, at least not right now, because The crowd is astonished at his teaching. And so with that, day two comes to an end. Jesus leaves the city, probably going back to Bethany for the night. And that takes us to scene three and verse 20. Look what happened to the fig tree. Verse 20, they passed by in the morning. So they're going back into the city. The fig tree withered away to its roots. Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look. The fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. And then he begins to talk about moving a mountain by by prayer. And verse 24, whatever you ask in prayer, believe you have received it, it will be yours. Verse 25, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father who is also who is in heaven may forgive you. So he gives this lesson on faith and prayer. What's going on here? Try to picture the scene. Jesus is with his disciples. They're walking back to Jerusalem. Peter says, look at the fig tree. It's withered. It's dead as a doornail. You know how trees look when they're dead? Like it's all brown leaves and you can go. The the, the, the branches are, are, are totally dried up. Easy to crack. Peter points this out. And then Jesus gives this instruction about faith and prayer and forgiveness. What does it all mean? Let's, let's remember the sandwich. Fig tree, temple, fig tree. Think about what's happening here. Mark's put this together for us. Jesus comes to a fig tree that looks good but has no fruit. What does he do? He pronounces judgment on it. What happens to it? They come back later and they find out that it's withered and died. Then Jesus comes to a temple. That looks good. There's all kinds of activity going on there. There's priests and leaders and sacrifices and all those things happening. But there's no fruit. It's corrupt. And he pronounces judgment on it. And you know what's going to happen to that temple? It's going to wither and die. He'll tell us more about that in the coming chapters. Jesus is announcing not only the end of a fig tree, but the end of the temple and its ministry. Why do I say that? Think about with me what's, uh, what, what's happening in the temple. And I see two big problems that Jesus is highlighting for us here. First, you've got these buyers and sellers, right? Why were they thrown out of the temple? I believe the reason they were thrown out isn't because of what they were doing, but because of where they were doing it. Location, location, location. Location matters. Here's a picture a recreationist drawing of the temple. That black circle, that's that gate where Jesus would be coming in. And that black arrow, that's where the court of the Gentiles is. That's where this buying and selling and changing of coins was taking place. Now, you have to understand what's happening here. This is the Passover week. It's a time when a temple tax needs to be paid every year. And, so, and that temple tax can't be paid with Roman coins. It has to be paid with a special kind of coin. And so you have to have money changers to be able to make that exchange to do your duty as an Israelite. And so those money changers are needed. And then also people come to the temple and they need to make sacrifices. So poor people, they would buy doves or pigeons and that's the sacrifice that they would make. Well, if you're traveling from 50 or 100 miles away, you can't bring animals with you, sheep or doves. And so you buy them there in the area. And so you have to have some way to to buy those animals to be able to take them to the priests. It seems though that until recently, Those exchanges and those those tables where you could buy and sell those things, those were at the Mount of Olives. Where's that? It's outside the city. Remember, I showed you that first circle. It's outside the city. Now they're inside the temple because it seems that Caiaphas had set up his own rival buying and selling so he could get a cut cut of the profits, robbers. And this is located in the only place in the temple area where the nations could come and worship and pray. I don't think it's what they're doing. I think it's where it is. God's, hear this. This is so important. God's intention for the temple was for it to be a light to all the nations of the world. And his intention Go back and read it in Isaiah 2. His intention was that the nations would stream to Jerusalem to come and worship the one true living God. And now the sanctuary, that place of prayer for the nations, has been turned into a shopping mall. There's no place to pray. The temple was to be a house of prayer for all nations. What does that mean? Well, of course, it means that Israel was to pray for the nations, and the Psalms are full of prayers for the nations. But it also means that the nations were to come there to pray, and there's no place for them to do that. So the first problem is where this buying and selling is taking place. And the second problem is that the leaders were so corrupt. Think about this. If you're familiar with this story, slow down and think about this. The Messiah is standing in the temple and the religious leaders look at him. And what do they do? Instead of bowing down and worshiping, they want to kill him. That's how corrupt they were. And little did they know that Messiah would use their corrupt, murderous plan to bring salvation to Gentiles and Jews alike. Jesus, who curses the fig tree and the temple, was himself cursed so he could bring salvation to sinners like us. Galatians 3, this is exactly what Paul tells us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Everyone who doesn't keep the law perfectly is under a curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit, promised spirit through faith. Do you get what's happening? When Jesus died on that cursed tree, a Roman cross, he became a curse for all sinners and lawbreakers like us. And he took the curse that we deserved. And when he did that, the once for all sacrifice, the temple was no longer needed because those sacrifices were now obsolete. Jesus comes to two things that look good on the outside but have no fruit and both are cursed. He's not being arbitrarily mean to a fig tree. He knows how hard it is to understand what he's doing. And so he gives the fig tree to his disciples and us as an illustration to understand what he's doing in the temple. So here's the question. If the temple is no longer the house of prayer for all nations, where is it now? We'll come back next week, and he's going to explain more <laughs> in chapter 12. But I won't leave you hanging completely. What he says in verses 22 to 25, help us understand where the house of prayer is now. He says, my house will be called the house of what? A house of prayer. What does he talk about in verses 22 to 25? He talks about prayer. I think there is a connection. This all fits together. He says in verse 22, have faith in God. He's saying, come, if you were here last week, like or a couple weeks ago, like, like blind Bartimaeus, and, and, and like the father who says, I believe, help my unbelief. come with faith come asking great things whatever you ask in prayer believe that you have received it and it will be yours this is not a blank check for fulfilling ungodly desires but this is a this is a request for the nations to come to Christ for us to be that servant community we heard about in chapter 10 last week for us to Trust God like Jesus will when he prays in Gethsemane, yet not what I will, but what you will. He's teaching us how to pray and how to be a house of prayer for the nations. We come in prayer having received forgiveness, having been reconciled by Christ who became a curse for us so that we could receive the promised Holy Spirit. And now by the Holy Spirit's power, we can forgive others it's not easy to forgive is it but it's essential and it's possible now it can be especially hard when we need when we're standing in the place of prayer and we need to forgive someone who's unrepentant in the way they've sinned against us or hurt us and and that kind of forgiveness won't necessarily result in reconciliation with that person but that kind of forgiveness does clear our heart of bitterness and hatred and revenge. If you're wrestling with forgiveness and how this works, don't wrestle alone. Reach out to a trusted friend. Reach out to an elder. We'd love to help you with this. Jesus wants us to see him for who he truly is. He's Messiah. And he is bringing to an end the need for the temple as the house of prayer. And he will become the cornerstone for what? For what? for a new temple. We'll read about that next week. And that new temple will be a house of prayer for all nations. And that new temple, that's you. And that's me. And that's us. And that's churches like ours. These new temples with Christ our cornerstone. And as I was reflecting on this, I was so encouraged by how The ministry of of a house of prayer is, is taking place amongst this congregation and what you're involved in. Do you know this week in this building, there were people here learning English and learning about Jesus. And there were people from Chile and Iran and Afghanistan and other places. Do you know that in this building on Saturday morning and Sunday morning, There are groups of people that gather together to pray, and you're always welcome to come. And one of the things they pray for is missions and the gospel going to all nations. As we remember Juneteenth this morning, we remember that God is reconciling races and nations and gathering a completely new people to himself. And some of that is wonderfully in evidence here this morning. Do you know that as we gather on Sundays, on any given Sunday, do you know that the nations are here There are people from Ghana and Iran, Nigeria and El Salvador, people from Taiwan and China, Afghanistan, South Korea, Kyrgyzstan, Peru, Mexico, England, Bolivia, Nepal, Venezuela. And if I've left your country out, I didn't do it on purpose. I'm sorry. Let me know so we can add to the list. One of the reasons I love being a part of of what's going on in this congregation is that we have become and are becoming an international house of prayer, a place where the nations are gathering to worship and follow Jesus together and praise and pray. One of the reasons I love living in Northern Virginia is the nations have come to us and we get to be part of what God is doing in in the, the, the great gathering of the nations around the person and work Of Messiah Jesus. Oh, rejoice greatly, O Redeeming Grace Church. Shout aloud, O nations, behold your King. Behold your King. He's come to you, righteous and having salvation. And O Church, your King will. Come again. He will come again, we'll see in chapter 13, with great power and glory to gather his multinational people to himself, to judge his enemies, and to bring us home to the new Jerusalem. It doesn't need a temple, because he's our temple. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to Messiah.